0: All right. Hopefully I remember how to do this. It's been a while. miss being with you guys. I did get to uh, preach in two churches and do eight hours of pastor's conference teaching, so I was busy while I was gone, so that was fun. Um, If you have a Bible, if you can open it up to Luke. We're going to start off in Luke chapter 2 today as we look at the idea of peace. Luke chapter 2, It's going to be found on page 857 in the black Bibles that are under the chairs, if you'd like to follow along in one of those Bibles. We're looking today at the idea of peace. The announcement that the angels made to the shepherds is that Jesus is bringing peace. Our hope at Christmas time is that Jesus is the one who will truly bring peace. Reconciliation between God and man, the end of war between God and man. But also reconciliation between fellow men, between human beings, that we would actually be at peace with other people. And yet we still live in a place that's not completely at peace, and so we struggle to understand to, to what degree does Jesus actually bring us peace? How does that actually work out if the world is still all crazy, but Jesus is the one that brings us peace at Christmas time, that first Christmas 2,000 years ago? Then how, how does that work? Where, where is the peace? And so let's read Luke, we'll read Luke chapter 2, the familiar uh, Charlie Brown Christmas story. It's Luke chapter 2 verses, I'll read verses 1 through 14. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. I just want to make a small aside comment about the first couple of verses. Repeatedly throughout the Gospels, we see uh, historical notations made so that first witnesses could verify the truth of what they were saying. The Gospels are not theological and therefore non-historical. The Gospels are historical and theological. And that's a very important point that that skeptics uh, take issue with. Uh, The the historicity, the historical reliability of the Gospels is what makes it so theological. That God actually entered history. It's not the God out here floating around It's the the best myth of all of the myths. It's the myth that became true. It's historically real. Okay, so back to the reading. Verse 3, all went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, David the king. And so the promised Messiah needed to be a part of that family, David, King David. Verse 5 says, to be registered with Mary as betrothed who was with child. And While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So God enters history. He's born as a baby to a poor family, but he's born in the right place. He's born in the right family. He just doesn't have a place to sleep. Verse 8 says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. This is very important to remember. They were filled with fear. We usually picture angels as the little fat babies, right? Most of you, if you have, uh, or, or their willow tree wood carvings, right? If you have that in your house for Christmas. So you've got the little willow tree wood carvings, you know, like a pretty choir girl. Or you've got the baby, the little cute fat babies. But angels generally were horrifying monsters, okay? If you read the scriptures, if you actually pay attention, they were generally horrifying monsters. A couple of times they appear as men, right? They appear to Abraham. They appeared at the Sodom and Gomorrah to Isaac and his people. So a lot of, you know, a few times they appeared as men. But usually they were scary monsters. And we need to remember that. These scary monsters that worship God. and You know, in Ezekiel, they have these multiple faces and wings and their wheels flying in the air and their flames of fire. they these dragon creatures with wings over their head and their feet and their, their bodies. And so we need to remember that, that that's, that's what an angel generally is. It's a scary monster. And so they were filled with fear. Verse 10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who is the Messiah. Verse 12 says, and this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, because that's not a normal place to put a baby. He's going to be in a feeding trough. So that's part of how you'll know it's the right baby, okay? That's how you'll know it's the great Messiah he's going to be lying in a feeding trough with the animals, Verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so they went. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you promise peace through Jesus. And God, we pray that you would help us to know it because we don't always feel that peace, God. And sometimes we question and we're wondering where it is, and so we pray that you would help us to find it, to know it, uh, to fight for it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was trying to think of something that uh, pictures where we live and the tension between the peace that Jesus brings um, and really the disturbance and the turmoil that we live in every day. I was re- remembering something that happened uh, several years ago. I think it was about eight years ago. My youngest daughter was about four years old. We were in our old house, and you all have heard me talk about this a lot because it scarred me, but we had an old historic home that we were remodeling for four years. and So we're in this, this older home, and we had a just sheet glass front door. So real, real pretty, right? But it's solid glass, uh, and the kids were going to some kind of kids' choir that night, and uh, I think half of them were outside, and the other half was inside. It was that kind of like trying to get out the door time, you know? Like, okay, let's, let's get going. And I was inside, half of them were outside, and uh, I hear this loud crash, and my daughter actually, yeah, actually I saw it. I was coming, coming around the corner, and I actually saw her falling through, coming into the front door, tripping on our front porch and shooting like a rocket through our glass front door, which was, was horrible. And so she's screaming, and she's bleeding. Um, and so what do I do? I mean, I'm her dad. I, I swoop her up, right? And so to me, that's that's the peace that God gives us. She, she was still bleeding, and she was still screaming, and I think she was still in a lot of pain. She had cut her cheek open pretty bad. Um, but but I was holding her, right? And so that, that to me is, is a picture. It's not the only picture. It's not exhaustive, but that, that's a picture of the kind of peace that God brings to us. He's with us. He's, he's with us. Emmanuel means God with us. That's part of the promise of who Jesus is, God being born as a man, the incarnation. He takes our place as a substitute. He's with us. And so part of a parent's job sometimes is just to be with your kids and say, it's going to be okay even though it's not okay. And you don't really know when it's going to be okay. And you're not even really sure if it's going to be okay. But as an imperfect human parent, you just, you're just with them. And you say, it's going to be okay. I'm going to hold you. I'm going to walk through this with you. And I believe that's one of the primary ways that God brings us peace, is he is with us. He cares for us. Now, we also know and we believe that in the end, he is going to make it all right. And so again, a parent to some degree, especially compared to a four-year-old, has some capacity to make things right, a much greater capacity than the four-year-old does, right? I mean, we don't have the perfect kind of God, divine, set the universe all to peace capacity that God does, but we have some capacity to make things right. I had a car. She didn't have a car. Um, I knew some doctors. I had some money. I took her to the hospital. They sewed her up. They gave her some horse tranquilizers. They sewed up her face, and then she's better now. And so I had some resources, some means to make things right. God has universal means and he is making all things right. He's sewing the whole universe back together. And that's our ultimate hope. Now I want to give you a little picture of something that came along too that in the process of me swooping up my daughter to help her to make things right, grabbing a rag to stop the bleeding, um, I walked into our bathroom that had a, a, a plate glass mirror, I don't know what you'd call it, just the whole wall is a mirror. You know, that's the way the bathroom was. And, and so that's a mistake as a parent to other parents, I would advise you. If your child is bleeding, you, you don't walk them in front of a mirror, right? Because misery loves company, but mi- misery doesn't love a mirror, is, is how I would put it, right? So she saw the horror, and that just made things worse. She was starting to calm down, you know, her, her screaming was starting to lower a few decibels, and then I walk in front of the mirror, and she sees herself, and of course, it's all worse. So God doesn't just show us our pain, but God... Give us some hope outside of ourselves. I guess is, is kind of what I was trying to illustrate with that idea. He comes in, he does sympathize with us, he understands our pain, he lived as one of us, but he doesn't just reflect it back to us. He gives us something beyond ourselves to hope in. So I, I want to take that as kind of a framework and then look at a few of the other uh, verses and chapters that talk about the peace that, bring, that Jesus brings. And the first one is kind of the bad news first, and it's in Matthew 10. So if you'll flip to Matthew 10, it's on page 815. Matthew chapter 10, uh, page 815 in the Black Bible. 815, write that down. We're going to read Matthew 10, 34. So, I think so we've kind of agreed. There's, there's a degree to which peace is here with Jesus, right? And there's a degree to which peace is not here yet. Um, sometimes theologians call that the already not yet. Right? The kingdom is here, but the kingdom's not fully realized. Okay? Same thing with peace. Peace is here. Peace is in Jesus. He's the source of peace. He walks with us. He is our peace. But peace is not complete. All things are not perfect yet. The universe is not completely sewn back together yet, and we're waiting for that. So Jesus addresses that painful process, and that's what I'm calling this first point, the painful process of peace. Right? The painful process of getting there. 1034 says... Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Now, I set it up the way I did because otherwise you'd be like, the Bible does not agree with itself, right? If you read that and you read what the angel said, Jesus is coming to bring peace. And then here Jesus says, nope, I'm not. I'm not coming to bring peace. I'm coming to bring a sword. Jesus is addressing this painful process and he unpacks it for us. Look at what he says. So verse 34, don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. Now, he tells us other places, John 14, my peace I give to you. We we know he's giving peace. We know he's ultimately going to get to peace. But he says there's this painful process, this unpeaceful, non-peaceful process of getting to peace. And he describes what this looks like. This is what the the painful process looks like. Verse 35, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me, is not worthy of Me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than Me is not worthy of Me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow Me is not worthy of Me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. When, when we were in Proverbs last summer, we talked a lot about how Hebrew wisdom and Hebrew poetry um, says something, says it again another way, says it again another way. So we rhyme sounds, and they rhyme ideas, Okay? And Jesus here is rhyming ideas in the same way they would in Proverbs or in the Psalms where He says, don't love your mom or your dad more than me. And then He rhymes that idea with, be willing to pick up your cross and follow Me. And He rhymes that idea with whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. There's this painful process of choosing to follow Jesus and to see Him as our Savior instead of the other saviors that we've been clinging to. And that's painful, and that's hard for us to let go because all we've ever known are these other saviors, right? I mean, if you've been making your way by being independent, by being smart, by having money in the bank, by having a lot of boyfriends, a lot of girlfriends, by numbing the pain with whatever medicine you can get your hands on, Whatever way you've been saving yourself, you've been finding peace. it's going to be hard to let go of that to grab onto Jesus. And one of my favorite illustrations I've used before is, is the monkey trap. You' all seen the monkey trap thing, right? The, I'll show you a picture here. I did not draw that myself. I found that online. But um, in places where people need to catch monkeys, I've, I've never caught one myself. But in, in these places, I'm told that they'll put some kind of jar, often they 'll use coconuts and they'll carve out a hole that's just big enough for the monkey's wrist, but when he grabs hold of the shiny object within the coconut, within the jar, within the can, he can't pull it back out because his hand is now clenched and he won't let go of whatever that object is that he wants, right? Um, Pringles can would be the same for me. That's, I mean, that's kind of the trick. If you want to catch me, you could tie a chain to a Pringles can, right, and put something salty in there, Pringles, beef jerky, whatever. I would reach in... And then I couldn't get my hand back out. Very frustrating. I think they need to make um, Pringles can, cans for you know, larger people. I don't even have really big hands either. That's the frustrating thing. But they get stuck in there. Jesus is saying There's, there are these things that you're going to grab hold of, and you're not going to be able to let them go. But if you can't let go of them, you're not holding on to him. And so if you're clinging to your life, he says whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's saying if if you're willing to let go of those things that you've said all along, this is my life, my children are my life, my family is my life, my job, that's all I know, it's my life, my hobby, that's my life. He says if you're willing to let go of that and hold on to Him, you're going to find your life. You're going to find salvation because He's really life. Not all these other things that we cling to. And so that's the, the painful process. He says, I haven't come to bring an immediate peace to you, but a sword, it's going to be chaos. It's going to be painful processes. You're letting go of these false, what we call idols, right? These false gods. None of us, none of us, well, most of us probably don't have little statues that we're bowing to, but there are things in our life we're not willing to let go. There's things in our life that we're pouring all our energy into to serve. There's things in our life that we are worshiping by the time that we spend on them by the energy that we spend on them, by the emotion that we spend on them. So that's a little psychological test for idol worship. If all your time is on something or if all your emotion goes to something or if you're always flaring up or always getting depressed over certain themes in your life, those themes, those things are probably an idol. Comfort, health, relationship, family togetherness, they can be good things. We saw that in the life of Paul. Paul talks about that, how he had all these great things. He had this great resume. He knew God's word. He was zealous for God's law, but that had become an idol. And he considers it rubbish now. He considers it trash. He's let go of that to cling to Jesus. So that's part of the painful process for us is recognizing what those idols are and being willing to let go of those. And so that would be my prayer for you this holiday season, this Christmas time. But in the midst of all the chaos and the busyness and the presence and everything that we do, the good things, the bad things, all of that, that you'd pause and you'd pray and say, God, help me to let go of whatever it is that I'm clinging to. Help me to let go of those things. Help me to cling to you. Help me to follow you and not follow these other false saviors I've been following all along. The, the next thing I want us to, to look at is how, how we actually experientially find that peace day to day. So recognizing the idols that you're clinging to, letting go of those is an important step, right? It's an important process. But on a day-to-day basis, once you've recognized those things, how do you day-to-day cling to Jesus? What does it look like to cling to him, to follow him, to carry that cross every day? And I think it's this prayerful fight. It's a fight of prayer. I think that's really the core, the center. Um, If you flip over to Philippians, let's flip over to Philippians chapter 4. Page eight or nine, eighty-two in the black Bibles. Philippians chapter four. This is one of the first sections of scriptures I ever memorized in my life. Um, I was a very anxious person when I first came to Christ. Um, worrisome person. I've told y'all before. I'm kind of I'm kind of melancholy, um, and so the gospel kind of brought me out of that in a lot of ways. I'm not as scared of people now as I used to be, and I'm not as depressed as I used to be, but that's still, still kind of there. Some of those things are still there. And so the first thing I memorized was Philippians 4, 6 through 7 that talks about not being anxious, don't remain in your anxiety, but pray. And that's a part of where the, the fight takes place, and peace will come as you pray instead of staying in your anxiety. So that was really foundational for me. That was really helpful for me to grow in that. And then after 10 years of marriage, my wife really challenged me on the whole issue of joy. Like, isn't that supposed to be a part of your life if you're a Christian, right? I mean, she was nicer than that in the way that she said it. But it really, I really began to be convicted that, you know, maybe, I mean, melancholy may be my personality, but I'm supposed to rejoice anyway. And so I thought, hey, I'll memorize the two verses before this section that I'd never memorized before. It starts in four in four. Look at four four with me. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He repeats it. It must be important, right? Verse 5 says, Let your reasonableness, others say gentleness, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He's right here. So going back to the picture I was telling you before, we, we need to see Him as with us. So the picture of me scooping up my daughter, we need to see Him holding us. We need to see Him walking with us through the hard times. That's hard for me to picture that. And that's one of the commands of Scripture that we would, by faith, see God as with us. That we would rejoice because the Lord is at hand. That we would believe that He is Emmanuel, that He's with us. Talk to you about this book called The Cure where it talks about the vision of instead of God over there and our sin between me and Him, God with His arm around me, God with me. If you don't see God as with you and if you don't see God as pleased with you, then there's a good chance you're not a Christian, you don't understand the gospel. You may just be slipping in and out of that reality that you knew once and you're forgetting now. Peter talks about how we can forget and become nearsighted and blind. So we just need to remind ourselves. That's part of what we do in public worship and small groups and prayer groups and discipleship groups is we remind each other of that reality. God is with you because of what Jesus accomplished. Because Jesus took away your sin, God is with you. He's not over here angry at you. He's with you because Jesus took the penalty for our sin. And Jesus gives us his perfect righteousness. And so he says, remember that. The Lord is at hand. Verse 6 then says, don't be anxious about anything. And anytime it's a present tense in the Greek, it really means ongoing. Any, any present tense in the New Testament's ongoing. So don't stay anxious about anything. Don't remain anxious about anything, but don't remain anxious, but in everything by prayer. In supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It says it surpasses understanding. It's mystical. It's supernatural. It's not, it's not something we can necessarily explain, but he gives us a process. This prayerful fight for peace. We will continue to pray. We'll fight for joy. We'll fight for peace. My wife and I, in the midst of stress... Uh, this year, last few months, we've tried to encourage each other, praying for each other and, and joking with each other and talking with each other that we'll, we're going to help each other fight for joy in the midst of other crummy things that are going on. That's part of what a festival time is. It's a time you set aside and you say, we're going we're to rejoice. You know, Christmas comes every year. We don't always feel like rejoicing this time of year, but we're going to purpose to rejoice. We're going to set aside some time to do that. We're going to trust that the Lord is at hand, and we're going to pray instead of staying anxious about all the junk that's swirling around in our life. That reminds me of a statistic I read that's been really uh, impactful in my own marriage. If you're married, even if you're not married, this is helpful. Um, the highest statistical correlation for couples that stay together and have a happy marriage, the number one thing, that the highest number, the highest percentage, it's over 90% of couples that pray together, stay together. That's the number one factor, more than anything else. You know, all these other things are important. Talk to each other, take your wife out on a date, buy her flowers. All those things are good, okay? I'm not saying don't do those things. but I'm saying the most important thing is praying with your wife. I have a picture here of a couple praying before going to bed. That's so important. That's so important. I'm a preacher, right? And so early in our marriage when I would pray and my wife would fall asleep and she wouldn't be listening to me, that would really hurt me. So for a while, I just didn't pray anymore because to me, the important thing was her listening to me pray, right? I don't, you know, That's this bizarre, sick, twisted mind of a preacher. But I was reminded of this, this statistic and just somewhere along the road, God just convicted me. I think praying is more important, right? Like maybe it's a good thing that she falls asleep in this incredible security that I'm praying for her and for us. Maybe that's a good thing. And so we've resumed that, that habit. And that's been a beautiful thing for our marriage. It's been a great blessing for us. Pray. Pray. That's part of how we find peace. Part of how we find peace in marriages. It's part of how we find peace in relationships with other people. It's part of how we find experientially how we feel, how we sense the reality of God is with us. The Lord is at hand. When we're feeling anxious, we purpose to not remain anxious, but offer prayers up to God. And in that process, we find peace, A peace of God that surpasses all understanding, it guards our hearts and our minds. If you, you want to slow down the craziness, it's going to guard your mind, right? I mean, we're all a little crazy, but if you want to, want to set that back a little bit, slow down the crazy process. Pray, ask God for His help, and He'll help you. The Lord is at hand. The last thing I want us to think about is if, what this, what a faithful picture of peace is. So, where are we going to see peace in the here and now? If we know that. We're not going to find complete peace now. We're going to experience it. We're going to taste it through prayer. We're going to fight for it as we let go of those idols. We cling to to Jesus. There's that painful process of letting go of the things that we thought were going to give us peace, clinging to what really will give us peace. Then remaining in that instead of being anxious, praying, rejoicing, recognizing the Lord is at hand. He's with me through the gospel then where, where are we going to really see it? In kind of a, in a global, and a big, and a public way, where is peace going to be displayed? Paul says peace is going to be displayed through the church. And now we have to address both sides of this. I think it's both through the corporate church and also through the organic church, because the church is both. And so depending on who your favorite authors are, or depending on or kind of where you lean in the Christian world, You'll be like, well, the church is all about organic, and it's, you know, it's the people, right? When you do this thing, it's the people inside there. It's not the building. Um, but there's also, you read the pastoral epistles, the church is elders and leaders organizing people. There's organization there. There's public proclamation of the word. There's these uh, institutional things that are a part of what the church is supposed to be as well. So the church is both. Church is always supposed to be both. And Paul says that the way peace is displayed is in the church. If you'll flip over to Ephesians, it's just, in my Bible, it's just a couple pages, page 977. Page 977 will be in Ephesians 2. We looked at this a couple months ago as a church when we were in Ephesians, and this is a great picture of how we find find peace. I forgot to mention we were talking about prayer. I was going to read a... A quote from this on, on Philippians, but great book. There's a Sunday school class we're doing, and I think there's have still got like a f- four or five weeks left in the new year. It's at ten thirty Sunday school class across the way on a on a praying life. It's great, great stuff. Recommend that highly to you. A praying life by Paul Miller. Okay, so what's a faithful picture of peace? Look on page nine seventy seven. It's uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse thirteen. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, okay, so he's he's the one that makes it happen. We've talked about that already. He takes our sin. He gives us his righteousness. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, Paul's talking specifically about the dividing wall between the Jews, God's covenant people, and everybody else. But also, uh, we can derive out of that the the dividing wall between us and anybody. There's, There's no dividing walls between us and anybody else through Christ. We're all one in Christ. So he says he did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And there's a lot of complicated stuff about the law there, but what's clear is we look at Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees and we look at what Paul wrote in Galatians, we look at what Paul's written in Philippians, what Peter's written, and you know, everything else in the New Testament, it's clear that no one of themselves can fulfill the, all the requirements of the law. Only Jesus did that. So at Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation and we're celebrating this theological idea that God became man and did the thing that man couldn't do, which was fulfill God's righteous requirements. He did that in a moral way, right? In the spirit versus the letter of the law sense, Jesus did what really counted. He really loved people. You know, he would confront the Pharisees and say, you're, you're fulfilling these minor pieces of the written law, but you're failing at the weightier your things of the law because you don't love people. Jesus did that. He nailed it. But he also fulfilled the, all the written parts of the law. He fulfilled the whole thing. And He died. And so Hebrews tells us and Galatians tells us that covenant's now finished. Someone finally fulfilled it. It's Jesus. And now we're under the new covenant. We have a righteousness by faith in him, by his accomplishment. And so now we are to fulfill the righteous moral requirements of God's law, the universal requirements of God's law, the Ten Commandments, the morality of the law. We're no longer bound, though, by the Mosaic National Covenant of the old covenant all the Levitical requirements because all those were shadows pointing to Jesus who's now fulfilled what really matters and so it's clear that Jesus is our peace there's now one people there's not God's covenant people and then God's halfway covenant people there's by faith in Jesus by his blood is what it says one people in Jesus and so back to verse 17 excuse me 16 says, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, right? So the cross is the means by which that's accomplished. His substitution is death for us, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17 says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He talks about the apostles, the prophets built together. It's this holy temple, the spirit uh, dwelling within us. And so he talks about this vision of now the temple, the place where you would go to meet with God is now the people of God. So it's now no longer building dependent, right? And so that's where we talk about, you know, here's the church, here's the steeple, open up the doors, and there's the people. So the people are where God's presence is made known. But the building is not as important. The building here could burn down tomorrow and we're still the church, right? And he's saying the church is the temple. The church is the building. You don't need a building. The church is the building. The people of God are the building where people can look and say, look at that beautiful building. Look at those foundations. Look at those temples. Look at that structure. That structure is a people now from every tongue and tribe who have had their sins forgiven by Jesus. That's, that's the structure. That's the building. Remember, at the time of this writing, in the first century, the, the temple, the Old Testament temple, Herod's temple, it was one of the great wonders of the world. It was this fantastic building. So we're talking the, the billboard of what God's doing was this incredible golden, pearly, uh, marble building. Just gorgeous. Incredible. And Paul's saying that, that's the people of God now. Different tongues and tribes come together, different languages, different cultures, different people groups, no matter what race we are, no matter what neighborhood we grew up in, no matter where we come from, us gathering together and finding our hope in Jesus, that's now the beautiful building. That's now the wonder of the world. That's the the visual. That's the embodiment. That's the picture, the faithful picture of peace in the world is this reconciliation. People now that gather, we're no longer afraid of God. We're not self-righteous, but we gather confessing our sin and trusting that Jesus is our righteousness. And recognizing that we got a lot of work to do, and so we come together and we try to help each other out. We, we pray for each other. We encourage each other. We accept new people into our circle. It doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter what they dress like. It doesn't matter what tribe they come from or what race they come from because there's now no more dividing. There's now no more hostility because we are one. God's gathered us together in Jesus because Jesus is our hope. So he's saying the faithful picture comes through the gospel. I have a picture here of... Uh, Teamwork, that's what I was thinking of when I, when I found this picture. It's some kids working on some kind of science project together. And what I would argue is that the world, those who don't know Jesus, will see the peace of Jesus when they see us working together. When they see us rubbing shoulders to encourage each other, to love each other, to help each other. And they notice, hey, these people wouldn't normal, normally have the same agenda, right? These people come from different places, different neighborhoods. This guy used to think his salvation was in money, and this girl used to think her salvation was in relationships. And and this person over here used to think that their salvation was in the neighborhood they grew up in. And this person over here thinks their salvation was in their education. But now they've let go of those traps, and now they're following Jesus, and they're working together to accomplish something more important than themselves. And that's that faithful picture that we give to the world of who Jesus is jeremiah 29 says that god's people during their exile should work for the welfare of the city they've called to it says for in the city's welfare then you'll find your own welfare that's one of the pictures that's one of the pictures of peace that we bring that we would actually make the city god puts us in better than if we weren't there right and there's a lot of other pictures like that first peter 2 where peter talks about us being built up in this holy temple on us uh in romans 13 paul talks about us honoring the officials and Uh, Paul talks in other places, like in Thessalonians, that we wouldn't be people that said, I hope in God, so I'm not going to work. I'm just going to be lazy and wait for him to come back. But we'd actually work, and we'd have something to share. We'd do things with our own hands and have money to share and help other people out. So all these different little pictures we get are that the church should be a faithful picture of God's peace in the world, that we would bring, bring redemption where we go. Through the public proclamation of Jesus being the core of that, and then through the actions of us living that out as we actually work with each other, as we actually tear down the dividing wall of hostility, we love people that are different than us and we work for the, for the sake of the city, for the sake of other people. I want to close by reading Longfellow's I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. I think it's a great picture, a great idea about peace. Longfellow says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how, as the day had come, the bell fries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. I want to encourage you, church, that there are going to be times, moments, days, months, years where you don't see the peace, where you don't feel the peace, but I want to encourage you to cling to Jesus and hope that He is the source of peace, that He is making all things right. And don't remain in your anxiousness, but by prayer, present your requests to Him. Go to him and there will be peace on earth. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. We thank you for your peace. We pray that you'd help us to embody it, to live it out. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be dismissed.